You are now listening to the MS podcast by Sanofi Genzyme. In this podcast, the brain takes center stage when Ole Petteriella, best-selling author and professional speaker, explores the different dimensions of MS and brain health through conversations with international specialists within neuroscience, psychology and physical activity. There's a saying that time is brain. Do you know that your brain starts aging at the age of 25? And even faster if you have a chronic disease like MS. A new study coming out of Norway shows that patients with MS have increased brain aging compared to healthy people. By using hypermodern artificial intelligence technology, we are now able to look behind the MRIs and current results show that brain age estimation is a promising tool for monitoring patients with MS disease. What if artificial intelligence technology could point us towards a more effective and curative treatment? To answer these questions, we have the pleasure to introduce the man behind the study, Einar August Högestöl, doctor in training at the Department of Neurology, Oslo University Hospital. Welcome, Einar. Thank you. Today in the clinic, we mostly use brain lesions and brain atrophy as a marker for clinical progression of the disease, MS. Is there a better way to do it? Yeah, yeah, actually it is. And and I like to see the MRI images as like an iceberg. And we only use the tip of the iceberg. Lesions and atrophy is the tip of the iceberg. And we need to look behind or beneath the surface. Because when we look at data, which MRI is, uh, we see that in each brain hemisphere, there's 300,000 points of data. And we need to utilize that. And we need to make that available for patient treatment so that we could improve MS care. And you are working on something that's called the brain age gap. Can you briefly explain to us what is the brain age gap in MS? Brain age is kind of a concept, but it's easier to understand if you think of it as a kind of program where we use thousands of healthy controls to build a model which could accurately estimate the brain age based on MRI images. But in theory, we could use everything. So we could use, uh, if you have uh, like data from your uh, training, you could use training data from healthy controls and build like a training data uh, model to predict training age. So in principle, you could use it on anything. But brain age estimation uses MRI images and we use thousands of healthy controls to make this model. And then we could put in an MRI image from an MS patient. And then we will get the estimation estimated age out. And the difference between the estimated age and the chronological age is what we term the brain age gap. And what do you see in MS patients when you do this? We, we have a longitudinal study where we followed 76 MS patients for five years. And then we looked at their brain age when we included them. And we also looked at brain aging. And we compared them to 250 healthy controls. And we saw that their brain on average, when they're 40 years old, is actually five years older than they're supposed to be. So there's a gap there, and we need to take effects to that. So uh, possibly uh, we could take this into the clinic in a few years, hopefully. So that's very interesting. What do you think is the main clinical relevance of, of the, your findings? Uh, just like any biomarker, we need to have a marker who could early estimate risk uh, for kind of disease progression in MS. And we've been looking for that for like 50 years. And we, we have some, but not very good biomarkers. And MRI markers is potentially very good also in the beginning of the disease, because we see that when the patients are diagnosed with MS, their disease have actually started several years before 
So we need markers to be able to use them early in the disease course. Yeah, so you can have early intervention. Yeah, early time, intervention. time is brain. So am I right in understanding that brain age could be a more sensitive marker for disease progression than maybe some of the parameters we use today in the clinic? Yeah, hopefully. And and we see that because when, when we draw the lines from brain age backwards from uh, from where we begin and where they supposed to be crossing the chronological age, we see that brain aging starts perhaps in the teenagers. So this is a very early time before the MS is getting diagnosed. And actually when the patients get their diagnosis, there's already a gap. So we could use that as a marker of how effectively we need to treat the patients from the very very beginning. Oh, that's very interesting. Now, and I would think that uh, for the patients, maybe it's on an intuitive level much easier to understand brain age than X amount of lesions or X percent of brain atrophy, like the things we use today in the clinic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the patients get dizzy when I talk about their MRI. So so we, we thought that brain age is more understandable concept for the patients and also for the clinicians because like clinicians are not radiologists, they also get kind of confused sometimes. And when we look at an MRI image and they get kind of uh, different... Uh, results based on the radiologists who actually look at them. So this is also a robust method to have uh, one unified answer and not kind of different answer answers depending on which radiologist you ask. So it's a bit of a more objective yeah. measurement. Yeah, 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 yeah. We hope so. You think this can be used as a motivational tool for the patient? Maybe they come to see you and you tell them, "Well, your brain age is three years older than your chronological age," and maybe they start taking drugs or exercising or doing things with their life and maybe next year you can see reduction yeah, yeah. in brain age. Hopefully that will be uh, one way to use it because we know as for MS and for many other diseases, we need to also change their life habits. They need to stop smoking, they need to start exercising, get into their routines, sleep better and this will also potentially benefit in addition to the treatment. So, so it's a motivation to see if they're interventions work. Yeah. yeah. So brain edge, we can measure it. Yeah. Can you say something about uh, what affects brain edge, particularly maybe in MS patients? I understand that the disease in itself plays a role, but we also know that MS patients are generally less active and maybe have other comorbidity uh, compared to healthy controls. Mm. Can you say something about what affects the brain age in these patients? Uh, it's still a pilot study, but but we have some other studies from um, from also the Hunt study. It's a population study in the middle of Norway, and they looked also at kind of the same concept, and and they they see the same things like uh, like I mentioned previously, like to stay in work for a longer time and not kind of get uh, kind of a disability so that you can't work, and uh, to improve your mind by learning new things to improve the plasticity in the brain and also stop smoking, as I said previously, and exercising and uh, the normal things like uh, avoiding high blood pressure, avoiding diabetes and all these big things, obesity, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Is this brain gap uh, or brain age, is it used in the clinic today? No, no, it's not. Uh, it's, it's still a pilot study, but actually brain age estimation started 10 years ago and we just brought it into the MS field. So, so it's out there in the neuroimaging research field, but 
there's still a way into the clinic because we need to convince the clinicians, we need to convince the radiologists, and we need to convince the patients. But there's already available programs out there who could potentially do it. So it's, if you have your own MRI image, you can actually, if you're a decent programmer, you could go home and cook yourself your own brain age. But uh, uh, to have it into the clinic, it's still a few years to go. So I could actually have my brain scanned and uh, probably do it myself and find out my real brain age? Yeah, if you dare. I, I'm not so sure. I haven't dared to do it myself. But, uh, <laughs> so you don't know your own brain age? No, no. I haven't actually. But um, but I if have. you were to guess, yeah, would it be... Uh, well, I have two small children and I, I don't sleep much. <laughs> I, I never smoked, so, so hopefully perhaps my chronological age. Okay. Sanofi Genzyme is a proud sponsor of the Global MS Brain Health Initiative, where the aim is to maximize lifelong brain health for people living with MS, creating a better future for everyone affected by the disease. The initiative calls for greater urgency at every stage from diagnosing, treating and managing MS. Time matters in MS. Read more about the initiative at msbrainhealth.org. The first thing that struck me when I read your um, your study was that this is a bit science fiction. Mm. It's about artificial intelligence, and of course, that's not something we learn in medical school. Can you, in layman's term, tell us a little bit more about exactly how these studies are performed? How did you do it? First, we need a lot of data. <laughs> so we need a lot of MRIs from healthy patients. But in theory, artificial intelligence is not that complicated. It's just when I do it, I write one line in my program. But there's two different kinds of, of artificial intelligence. There's machine learning, where we actually tell the computer what they need to look for. And there's deep learning, where we don't tell the computer what to look for. And the latter is much more complicated. So I use machine learning, where I actually tell the program what it's supposed to look for. And then we use 1,118 different data from one MRI image to estimate brain age. So after we made the model based on several thousand healthy controls, then we could actually apply it to anything by just inputting the features from the MRI. So it's a bit technical, but once you get your hand of it, it's just one line in my program. So Cool. Yeah. Uh, do you see any other uh, immediate applications for artificial intelligence in your own field? Other things you can do with this technology? Yeah, yeah, it's being applied all over in, yeah. uh, in medical research uh, to find combinations that we can't find with our human mind, uh, so to speak, especially in genetics, for example. Because we see that in genetics, uh, which my um, research group also is uh, working on, to see the correlations and the patterns is so difficult. So we need machine learning and and, uh, and artificial intelligence to help us. You think this is going to threaten our jobs as doctors or be a asset, a tool? As of now, it's only on the research stage, uh, at, at least in MS. But uh, in a few years, it's going to be an asset. And uh, potentially later, it's going to take over some of our jobs. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> So we know that the brain starts aging at a relatively young age. 25 years is, is a number that's been said uh, many times. Uh, yeah. Can we slow down brain aging in MS? And if so, how? Yeah, we see signs of it in our sample that the treatment is kind of affecting the brain aging. But what 
is actually causing this effect uh, is a bit more complicated because if you have an active MS disease, you get more efficient treatment, but you also get uh, more care from the MS nurses. You get more rehabilitation, and it, it's a it's a bit messy to to understand. So then we need more data. And potentially we could find some uh, signs of different uh, kind of treatments which are better for brain aging when we have more data. And and that's what we're looking for. And when you say treatment, you're not necessarily just talking about pharmacological treatment, but other types of treatment as well. It could be exercise, it could be cognitive training. Yeah, like in our patients, we do uh, extensive cognitive testing as well to see if there's some potential benefits or kind of disadvantages by the different uh, treatments. But uh, this is uh, exciting, but we don't have something uh, steady to kind of bring out in the clinic. Yeah. So the old saying, more research is needed. More research, always. (laughs) So I remember MS treatment has come a long way since I went to medical school in the mid-90s. And it seems to me that it's no longer by patients or doctors seen as a one-way ticket to the wheelchair. Can you update us a little bit on what has happened uh, in the last decade or so when it comes to uh, treatment of MS? Yeah, this has been one of my kind of main uh, main tasks uh, because people in general in Norway don't know that much about MS. If you ask the the general population, eighty five percent will think that it's a muscle disease yep. and not a neurological disease, and that's that's scary because that's what. Uh, the patients meet when they get out from the doctor's office. So we need to have informed articles, podcasts and media need to be more kind of interested in what MS actually is and not what it does to the MS patient. Yeah, because uh, it seems to me that most people know it affects the muscles and motor deficit paralysis maybe, but how about cognitive functions? A lot of uh, patients have their cognitive functions affected. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 60-70% have their cognitive domains affected but it's it's not like you get uh, dementia when you get MS because you you get specific deficits based on where these lesions are yeah. uh, and that's different from patient to patient because when I when I talk to patients they're unique in their own way because yeah. when you've seen one MS patient you actually only seen, seen one, one. Yeah, this is not a homogenous no, group no, no. at it's, all it's a pool it's yeah. uh, of all kinds of neurolog- neurological yeah, findings. It's, yeah. A, it's a very interesting disease to work with. Do you have any examples from um, patient cases where treatment has really, in in a large way, affected their lives? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, I follow up 250 MS patients uh, every week, and uh, and we see it's not. Uh, we we know that uh, treatment is halting the attacks, and it's halting progression. We know that from from uh, new population-based studies, and we also see that it's not you can't kind of point your finger on it. But so, some patients get better by all these invisible symptoms as well, in addition to halt uh, attacks. But it's not something we could predict because we need better markers like brain age or or, or different markers. But but some some patients, when I see them like six months after they started a new treatment, it's it's completely changed their lives, and they could start working again. They could uh, be with their children again, and they could start exercising again. So I don't understand it, <laughs> and not everyone else does either. But but it's very nice to see that we have treatment to offer these patients, and that their lives will be changed in comparison to uh, only 10 years ago. 
Yeah, so treatment really makes an impact on people's lives. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Have you guys done any quality of life studies or how it? No, but, but that was. Uh, I went to Ectrims just two weeks ago, and and that was one of the uh, main kind of issues about MS research that we need to implement quality of life studies, and we need we need to have structured questionnaires and and tools to kind of assess that part as well. Because there, there's been a lot, lot of focus on patient-reported outcome measures, PROMs as we call yep. them, to kind of have the patients tell us how they feel and not just that we report how the patients say they feel. Right. Because that's not always the same. Of course not. MS treatment has come a long way over the last few decades. Looking into the future, how do you see it developing within the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah, everyone is talking about cure. I think I don't think that's possible within the next... 10 years but uh, but uh, we we see emerging evidence that remyelination is a hot topic to do research on how could we improve the ms uh, disability after these attacks because now we can only kind of shorten the period where they improve by giving cortisone but remyelination specific therapy to kind of improve the remyelination after an attack that that's a very hot topic do we know more about the risk factors uh, behind the disease why some people get ms just like um, many other diseases in MS particularly, this is very complex because we know it's genetically based. We could look for all these 234 genetic markers that we know, but that's not the complete picture because we need to put in uh, epigenetics, we need to put in uh, lifestyle factors, and we need to to put in all these things that we can't control for. So it's it's, it's complex. If I came to you and I said, I'm worried about getting MS, my my dad had MS, and if you could give me, I'm asking you for some just advice on how to live my life. Do you have any? No, I, I like to imagine MS as a rocket on the way out into space. But as you've seen from some private rocket um, science projects, not every rocket get out into space. That's that's just like for cancer and for MS, it's the same. Not every rocket gets into space and not every risk patients get MS. And, and that's a good thing because uh, uh, if you have a parent and you're worried about getting MS, you're most likely to not get MS. Right. And that's that's the thing that we need to tell the patients. It, it's limited how much we can control our genes. Of course, we can epigenetics and things like that. But uh, how about lifestyle factors? Any known lifestyle factors, modifiable risk factors that patients should know about? You said uh, smoking. Yeah, it, it's just these general terms like uh, smoking and obesity that we know of. And there's also um, some uh, <laughs> controversy about vitamin D because there's been different uh, studies showing different kind of aspects of it. And, and we know that in Norway we have a high prevalence of MS. And But we can't find a latitude gradient when we look from the south to the north. Paul Baghansen did that in 2014 and he didn't find anything. But there's different factors like socioeconomic factors, which are interesting to look into, especially with uh, uh, income, with uh, socioeconomic status, what kind of work you do, if you work night shifts, how many children you have. Uh, and actually how many books you have when you were young. These are all factors 
into this complex picture yeah. of MS and so it's life itself. Definitely multifactorial. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So final question, um, this brain age estimation, how do you see that fitting into the future of MS treatment? We find in our studies that it's very sensitive to kind of pick up these slight differences from normal aging because the brain ages very slowly. And especially from their 20s to their 50s, 60s, the kind of the brain atrophy in general is very, very slow. And then we need to have very sensitive measures to kind of find that slight difference between the normal kind of uh, atrophy and the MS-specific atrophy. And that's not possible with the human eye. And then we need biomarkers like brain age estimation or other things. But we find that brain age estimation is is simple and it's uh, very sensitive also in the early course of MS. When do you think uh, this can be applied in the clinic? Yeah, we're, we're working on that, of course. And, and hopefully we will have a, a robust method to be applied uh, in perhaps five to ten years. But then we need to convince all the other researchers to, to do it because the MS field is kind of locked in on lesions and atrophy. And that's not the complete picture. When I see a patient and they say that, well, you tell me that my MRI is stable, but I don't feel stable. I feel that it's progressing. And how do you explain that? And then we need sensitive measures like brain age estimation or other things. Well, good luck in uh, convincing the clinicians to start using this. Yeah, I'm looking you. forward to seeing the results. Thank you for a very interesting talk, Einar. Thank you for having yeah. me. Thank you for listening to the MS podcast by Sanofi Genzyme. 